Welcome to the African Defense Review podcast. We're back with Jesper Cullen, who those of you who read the material on the site will remember as the talking head from our drones in the DRC uh, article. Uh, Jesper's back today to talk to us a bit about um, the ADF who were mentioned in the piece and who seem to make it into the news often when we talk about the DRC. So welcome to the show, Jesper. Thank you. Uh, so maybe, yeah, so the, the first thing maybe to start off, for those people who have absolutely no, no clue what an ADF is, uh, maybe can you tell us a bit about the group? Um, um, and yeah, where they come from, what what is yeah. So ADF starts for stands for Allied Democratic Forces. Started in Uganda in the late eighties, early nineties, but then pretty quickly became more of an amalgamation of rebel groups during the nineties. It started off primarily as an Islamic movement in Kampala in the late eighties. Um, it's primary focus was the Ugandan government and a rival Islamic group in the city, which they perceived the Ugandan government to be uh, supporting. Um, But then over time, it's become, and very quickly got pushed over into Western Uganda and then across the border into DRC, joined forces with another group called Nadu, which was not an Islamic group, but from an area of Uganda that's historically rebelled against Kampala. Um, and it's joined forces. It joined forces with that group in the mid '90s, and they started mounting attacks primarily in this border region. And this is and these were attacks against the Ugandan Yeah. So I mean, the group started off very much focused on targeting the Ugandan government, but really, back then, it lacked the capability to do so. So the Ugandan government sent troops over to this border region. And then really the ADF wasn't able to target the Ugandan state in any real way. A few sporadic attacks here and there against the the police, mainly outlying police posts, uh, a few schools, and a few grenade attacks in Kampala. But yet the primary focus of the group at that time was targeting the Ugandan state. Seems their overall, the final sort of aim of their group was to replace the Ugandan government with an Islamic government. And how is the group structured? So is it, is it kind of analogous to a Lord's Resistance Army in the east of Uganda? Do you have like kind of a single charismatic leader or is more sort of loose cells that kind of take advantage of the ADF banner when it suits them? Well, this thing that seems to change over the past three years or so. So the Ugandan, uh, I'm sorry, the Congolese army and UN peacekeeping forces have mounted an operation against them, which split the group up. Um, but until around 2013, there were in some ways some similarities to LRA um, with this, as you say, a charismatic leader. So this is Jamil Mukulu, who is this Ugandan national um, who has really sort of led this group, um, created a, a social code based in part on Islam, but very much focused around his leadership, his family. Um, but since this since this military offensive against ADF um, over the past three years, groups have lost a lot of members, a lot of its leadership has been killed. Jamil Mukulu has been arrested uh, last year, and it seems to have been split into several different factions. So over the past year, year or two, it's become a lot less of this sort of homogenous group, but more um, pretty sort of spread out independent group of uh, military units fighting. 
And where does where do the supporters for ADF come from? So it's it's unusual that a Dissian armed group displaced as far as, for example, Kampala, out to sort of the DRC and still retain the ability to recruit people. One of I mean, in Uganda previously, many of the rebellions had tried to move far across the country quickly found themselves in areas that weren't, for example, co-ethnic or didn't have the same political interests. So what was it about ADF that allowed them to kind of relocate to the DRC and still remain able to attract people to, to the cause? Um, well, I think the two parts there is why did it end up in DRC? How was it able to operate there? And then the part about recruitment. Um, so the first part, it simply wasn't able to operate in Uganda, even in Western Uganda, which is in many ways a more, more an easier place to operate for an armed group than somewhere in Kampala still the Ugandan military the Ugandan security forces are pretty strong there and have really reinforced the border area quite well ever since the mid 90s across the border the Congolese authorities really don't have the same capacity um, the terrain is also very difficult it's not the infrastructure um, so this creates an environment where ADF can operate pretty easily, pretty isolated from other outside influences. Um, and so that's why they've ended up there, but the, how they've then still been able to maintain sort of troops and so on. It seems as though recruitment of people willing to join up to this group because they see it as some uh, objective that they subscribe to, that seems to have fallen off in the past what, 10 years or more. Um, from everyone I've spoken to, it seems recruit, recruitment is mainly through kidnapping, the forced abductions of children, of young men. Um, this seems to predominantly occur in DRC, but also to a lesser extent in, in Uganda as well. But it seems this forced recruitment rather than willing recruitment. Um, another part is tricking people into joining, saying that their job opportunities, education, and that people say, if you meet us here at this time, then we'll, you'll get a university place or whatever. These sorts of tactics, again, tricking people into ending up in a place where they're then effectively prisoner and forced to fight, um, or not necessarily just fight, but provide sort of services to this group, because um, it's been coming too later. It's not just a military sort of rebel force, it's, it's much more nuanced than that. Um, but that's where it's been pushed into Congo, uh, and it's become much more of a Congolese group than a Ugandan group. And this objective we were just talking about of fighting the Ugandan state really seems to have disappeared. And it's now much more of a Congolese rebel group or Congolese armed group than a Ugandan rebel group. Does it in, in the kind of Congolese incarnation now have a new manifesto? So what, what if uh, back when previously they were under a kind of single command structure before the fracturing, if, if one had asked them, what is it that you want? What are you fighting for? What would the answer have been? Well, then at that point, it seemed um, that while it was ADF in the 90s, um, then it was very much focused against replacing the Ugandan government. Then when it formed, uh, joined this coalition with NALU, um, then again, it was still very much focused on Uganda. But it was at that point in the late 90s where it began to drift away from a focus on Uganda and then just become embroiled in Congolese issues. Um, and there, it seems as though during the early 2000s have so many different motivations within this group. And it seems as though, although there was some form of homogenous structure, quite a clear leadership, that they were pretty flexible in what they did. So whether that was fighting for um, the Congolese government as some sort of proxy army for against, against some of the other armed groups in Eastern DRC, um, acting as some um, 
almost like a mafia type uh, outfit, which is quite a few uh, officials in Eastern DRC have described them as to me, um, becoming involved in commercial activities. So gold smuggling, uh, licensing of timber felling rights in, in Eastern DRC around the Beni area uh, and smuggling uh, cross-border, um, cross-border smuggling of consumer goods. Um, so it seems though their objective even in sort of the early 2000s up to around 2009 wasn't again this rebel group but more a group that's become more focused on itself um, and sustaining itself independent of outside forces and it's been this gradual drift away from being a rebellion to just an armed group you mentioned a little bit at the, the beginning that there, there were times that they that operated as a proxy army for the Congolese state that, that's interesting yeah so I mean again the as with so much in ADF, the precise details of it are incredibly sketchy. But it seems though, um, so the Kinshasa government in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, part of this sort of attempt to destabilize parts of Eastern DRC, um, fight against some, or at least remove the influence of some of the other armed groups, provided material support to ADF. Um, the sea still seems to be pretty limited. Um, I mean, the largest sort of external support that we're aware of ADF came from Sudan rather than uh, Kinshasa. Um, but it seems to be part of this. They've been, in, an, in at times, pretty brief times, but at times acting in some sort of mercenary force. What was Sudan's interest in, in funding a group like the ADF? Um, well, I mean, there's pretty clear evidence for this that uh, some of the ADF leadership was trained in Juba in the 90s, um, according to one official source. Um, he's worked in Khartoum, uh, Jimmy Mukulu House in Khartoum in the 90s, pretty close ties to the Sudanese government. The motivations for Sudan to do that, um, I mean, Sudan at that time was providing a lot of support to armed groups in the region. Um, why exactly they provided for ADF is unclear, but it seems plausible that it could be because you was supporting rebellions in southern Sudan um, and this is some sort of retaliation against that or some sort of uh, reciprocal move um, but yeah again this was um, it seems to have been primarily training financial and material support so there some evidence of uh, in the late 90s Sudan providing airdrops of weapons and ammunition to ADF in, in and around the Beni area and why is it that we, we hear about the ADF so much? So this is, I think, probably over the years, our second or third podcast on, on ADF-related stuff. Whenever there's a discussion of armed groups in the DRC doing things, <clears throat> if it's not M23, it's inevitably ADF now. Why do they feature so prominently as it's the thing people talk about when talking about armed groups in, in the Eastern DRC? I think part of it is that for a foreign audience, it's quite an easy group to label, uh, label very misleadingly, but in a way that catches people's interest. So it's this Islamist background to the group that catches a lot of interest. That's going to you know, shift a story to an editor for by a journalist. Um, it's quite an easy thing to, to make interesting. Um, and again, um, another side to it is that Uganda really does seem to be pushing ADF as this threat to threat to threat to its state um, again there are all sorts of reasons why Uganda or the Ugandan government would portray ADF incorrectly but these sorts of facts seem to push ADF as this much more 
a much larger, much more important armed group than it really is. I mean, there's you know, dozens of armed groups in Eastern DRC, and ADF gets a completely disproportionate amount of coverage. Um, but then also the group has mounted some pretty large attacks. Um, over the past couple of years, it's been very active. It seems to have been on some sort of offensive, um, probably as a retaliation for the Congolese military and UN peacekeeping offensive against it. Um, so the pretty high casualty figures in these attacks in some of the small towns and villages around Beni, um, again, ADF aren't pretty aren't uh, responsible for these attacks, but they do they have a pretty large number of fatalities they've caused. So I think these various reasons are sort of all contributing to ADF getting a much larger profile than it really should. Let's um, segue there to the UN and, and uh, FADC, the, the DRC government's response to um, ADF. Since when have they started taking the group seriously or engaging with them militarily? What is what is the history of that that being that relationship, if relationship is the right word? Um, so, according to one UN official I was talking to, who spent a lot of time working on ADF in the Beni region. He said that. For the UN or the UN peacekeeping force in DRC, it really wasn't a priority until quite recently. He said that for him it was always his big interest, but there was never any response from him from the central MINUSCO or previously MINUC um, headquarters. Um, but this seems to change since the Davita M23 a couple of years ago, and that now M23 is out of the way, who is MINUSCO going to go after next? And ADF is quite an easy group to go after compared to most of the other armed groups in DRC. And that's because similarly to DRC acts as some sort of unified military movement. It has bases, it has camps. It doesn't blend into the civilian population in the same way as most armed groups in DRC. So this means for a military force to go after them, it's a lot easier than going after sort of people who have blended in. And according to this UN source, he said that over the past two, perhaps three years, MONUSCO has put a whole lot more resources into Beni, um, shifting some of their military units up there and spending a lot more attention on ADF. How successful has, has that been? So, I mean, when, when the UN turned its attention to M23, for example, they, in the final offensive, routed the movement in a matter of months, but the, the, the war against ADF has, has certainly gone on for a lot longer than that. So is this because ADF is just somehow better organized than M23 was, or is this a problem of tactics? Will Why is it that we haven't seen the same kind of successes in ADF's case as we saw with M23? Well, I think there certainly have been some successes. Um, so, so estimates of troop numbers are one way of looking at the effect. Um, again, these are pretty difficult to get reliable reliable numbers on. But the best figures that I've heard are that in around April 2014, the group had perhaps around 1,000, 1,200 members. And now it seems that's down to the low hundreds. And of that, perhaps only 70 30 to 70 of the estimates I've heard are actually in combat roles. Um, it's in around about a year after that offensive, so from April 2014 to early 2015. So there really has been some success there. They've also captured the, the group's leader last year. He fled to Tanzania where he was arrested. So there's certainly clear signs that the group's capabilities have been degraded. Um, but the group has still continue to mount attacks. I mean, there have been attacks over the past few weeks in Beni. Um, 
now although the Congolese authorities and UN attribute all of these or almost all of these to ADF that's certainly not the case um, but there is pretty it is pretty evident that ADF are sustaining some level of military operations but so there's been some success, but why not a complete wipeout of the group? Well, that's because the terrain's very difficult. Um, we're talking about a very small group of people, sort of if we only have a few dozen running around in the mountains in eastern DRC along the Ugandan border, how does a military unit that's set up with ground troops, armoured vehicles penetrate that sort of terrain? It's very difficult. Um, and... That's one of the reasons, perhaps another, is that, that it doesn't seem to be the same sort of focus on ADF as it was on M23. So M23 was this group that was on a hilltop with mortars overlooking Goma City. The Goma airport was in range of its of its mortars. I mean, this is a, a, a pretty big threat to a city that's strategically important, huge international presence there. So there's an incentive to put some resources into that. ADF provides this sort of opportunity, it seems, for MONUSCO to show its abilities, show that it's still achieving something, but it's not as important. I mean, we're talking about people in tiny villages a long way from anywhere. I mean, it, it's, it's horrible what's happening, but it doesn't seem to be the same sort of um, prioritization. And it's like that um, this, the same UN source I mentioned earlier, he said that although over the past two, three years, the UN has put a whole lot more attention on ADF. The Congolese authorities don't seem to be interested. And there isn't that same collaboration with them as there was against M23. So there's several factors why ADF are pretty still going to be able to continue to maintain their operations in the Beni area for the foreseeable future. I want mean, to just circle back to the thing you mentioned, talking about attribution being difficult, particularly since the group has splintered. There was an issue... This would have been some months back now where I think a truck was looted and some soldiers ended up being um, hurt in a shootout that, that happened afterwards. And there was a dispute as to whether the people who'd attacked the truck were in fact ADF or whether it was just uh, indisciplined elements of the FARDC. I mean, how much of this, how much of an issue is this identification problem, both for determining how much of the, the kind of violence ADF's responsible for, but also from a, presumably um, a MONUSCO point of view, knowing who exactly you're engaging when you're responding to criminality or, or these sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hugely difficult. Um, I mean, this is impossible really to say who's mounting what attacks, um, but knowing where the groups are operating, where these attacks are occurring. It's important because if these attacks, so I was looking at trying to find out why they're mounting attacks in certain locations. Some of these are occurring around places ADF have commercial interests, places along their, their smuggling routes across, down to the Ugandan border. So there seems to be perhaps those are more likely to be ADF. Others, quite some distance from ADF's, what we know to be ADF's main area of operations, where their bases are. And there's several other armed groups there, sort of local communities, self-defense groups, mutinous elements of the Congolese army. Um, there's also some indications of links between some of the Congolese army elements and ADF even. Um, so when everything's so intertwined, I mean, unpacking that and working out who's mounting what is, is very difficult. Um, and I mean, that seems pretty much an impossible task for the UN at the moment. Um, 
You'd mentioned there's been, there had been recently a number of attacks with unusually high fatality numbers. So is it, is it the case that as the groups become smaller and more fragmented, it's becoming more violent? Is that, is that kind of what you're seeing here? I mean, yeah, that's, that does seem to be in the case. Whether the offensive, like, as, as, whether the group becoming more fragmented has been the, the reason for the increase in sort of uh, violence in these individual attacks, that's unclear. But there has been this correlation, certainly, where in 2013 or 2014, uh, this offensive against the group really seen increase in the number, the frequency of attacks, but also in the scale of them, where you've had a lot more people killed, injured. Um, no longer seems as clear uh, as previously. Um, so previously, ADF it seemed would go into a town, kidnapping would be a priority rather than killing and also looting, so things like medical supplies, food supplies, that that was a, a, a focus. Now it seems as though supply, resupplying itself is, but killing rather than uh, kidnapping certainly has become uh, there's a flip there. And how much is ADF now tying up you in resources that could maybe be used to, to respond to other groups or larger groups or groups in perhaps more strategically useful areas? Is there an indication from MONUSCO or the UN that they, they feel this is an inappropriately large amount of resources being used to try and hunt a small group. I know when, when we did the drones in the DRC story, assets like, for example, surveillance drones, of which there are maybe, what, two available, uh, could maybe be better used in other areas of the country. So, I mean, do you get a feeling from the UN that this is they're, they're fine with this and this is a, an important priority and one that they're going to commit resources to fighting for a lot a medium term maybe or that they would prefer to be spending you know men material drone time that kind of thing in, in other areas of the drc the sense i get is that adf is a much easier group for the un to fight and it comes down to that it's it acts as a military unit yeah people clearly identifiable as militants um grouping together um, fighting other groups um, such as FDLR is much harder. Um, so the Congolese army tried to mount an offensive against FDLR last year. They went after a few basins. Straight away, FD, these, these uh, militants disappeared into the bush, blended into, uh, into civilian uh, communities, and that was the end of the offensive against them. So, I mean, ADF is one of the few groups that the setup of the UN force and the Congolese army is actually is built to fight. Um, there seems to be no real conversation about a change in strategy within the UN peacekeeping force and what they need to do to combat these other groups because their current capabilities, their current tactics just really isn't set up to, to deal with the situation there. And then finally, do you, I mean, do you think ADF is rightfully deserving of being the group that people are paying most attention to? So in terms of overall peace and stability in the Eastern DRC, do you think that there are other groups or other, other issues that actually the media in general, but also the sort of political security class would be better off paying attention and resources to trying to deal with? I don't think there's particularly one individual group that is the big group for Eastern DRC because they all seem to operate in very small areas. Um, the As we've seen over the past 20 years, you can fight one individual group, they end up lasting for a few years, they break down, the people die, the leaders get killed or arrested, but a new one comes in, takes the space. 
because you remove one rebel group from the area, there's now an empty space where other armed groups can form. The Congolese authorities, the UN, don't have the capacity to fill in that space. So it's more a question, I think, of sorting out why is it that the Congolese authorities aren't in a position or aren't willing to provide security, provide services in these areas. It's going to take a whole lot more than fighting individual groups. So this sort of military approach is merely some sort of plaster over a much deeper problem. And is there anything that you'd like to add, maybe some last thoughts of people who kind of are not following the Eastern DRC particularly closely, um, but who are interested in particularly that area between um, Uganda and, and the Eastern DRC, that something, I mean, if, if I haven't asked you that you think is kind of worth, yeah, worth adding Yeah, I, I think one thing that repeatedly comes up is this Islamist element to them, allegations that the group is part of a wider jihadist network uh, the Uganda government pretty frequently comes out and says ADF uh, has ties to al-Qaeda, has ties to al-Shabaab, um, is even accused. ADF having been involved in the 2010 bombings in Kampala. Um, this is something we keep seeing and there's no evidence for it. Um, and it seems to be this very politically, financially uh, motivated accusation from the Ugandan government that the terrorism threat really isn't as serious in Uganda as it is elsewhere in East Africa. Uganda is, receives a huge amount of funding for security, from particularly from the US. Um, and as one diplomat in the region put it to me recently, um, he described Uganda's um, talk of its terrorism threat as a money-making scheme. Um, and pushing this story of ADF as this jihadist group that's really focused on Uganda is, is one way of sustaining that um, but there's no evidence for it great um, thank you very much for your time thank you